Good evening. Good to see you here this evening. I appreciate everybody being here. Uh, we're going to be studying in 1 Kings chapter 19. If you want to be following along in your Bibles, 1 Kings chapter 19 is where the lesson will be coming from tonight. Uh, a few weeks ago, we started looking at the life of Elijah, and we went through chapter 16 into chapter 17. We looked at the rest of chapter 17, and we looked at chapter 18, and we saw uh, the ministry of Elijah as he was trying to turn the hearts of the people back to God. Uh, he, was, he was offering up prayer to God for three and a half years that it might not rain. Uh, and, and the last time we studied this, we looked at verse 18 and saw that uh, it hadn't rained for three and a half years. And then Elijah calls this competition together and he gets God to send down fire from heaven on a sacrifice and burn it up. And everybody's rejoicing and saying, the Lord, He is God. And they're, they're ready to go off and they kill all the prophets of Baal, 450 prophets of Baal. And it seems like everything is going great. Like this is going to be uh, some kind of a fairy tale ending to this story. Uh, it seems like everybody's on board. Ahab's even there. And he's, he's understanding all this. And Elijah prays for rain and it rains. And then we read at the end of chapter 18 that he, he runs back. He beats Ahab back to Jezreel. And he finds out that things aren't going to go as he had hoped. Uh, all of that excitement, all of that fun of, of seeing God respond to all of His prayers and do everything that He asks Him to do uh, is not going to have the kind of outcome that Elijah has hoped. When he gets back to Jezreel, he finds out uh, that Jezebel didn't like this information very much. Jezebel is the wife of King Ahab. And she's the one who came from Tyre who brought all of these prophets of Baal down. So she wasn't a big fan of Elijah killing off her prophets. I mean, those are the guys that are talking good about her, right? Those are the guys who are saying, you know, everything that you do will be, will be uh, wonderful and you will have such great prosperity in the land and, and building her up. And now they're dead. So she's not really happy about it. So everything then falls apart. You might think, well... Everybody will just rise up against Jezebel, right? And, and everything will be good. But the rest of this story isn't as good as we might hope or as good as we might think it should be. That's not the way life turns out. It doesn't go the way that we think that it should. Uh, life is much more like a roller coaster than it is like uh, an uphill climb. And then once we get to the peak, everything is, is rainbow and roses and, and good times. It's much more like a roller coaster without any of the fairy tale endings that we are looking for. So kind of ending on chapter 18 leaves you that impression that everything is going to be okay. Everything is going great. And our chapter divisions hold us back from seeing the rest of the story as we keep reading this. We see... That Jezebel makes a proclamation saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life, Elijah, as the life of one of those prophets you killed by this time tomorrow. Jezebel puts out a price on Elijah's head and sends out the guards and is able to, to go after 
Elijah to put him to death. I mean, what a turnaround, right? I mean, here he is thinking, oh, wow, everybody's admitting the Lord, He is God. Everybody sees that God is wonderful, that God is the one who is able to act, that He's the one behind all of this drought as punishment for their going after the Baals. And he's thinking, yeah, surely everybody will follow God now, but Jezebel still has influence over all the people. And none of the people are rising up against her. None of the people are stopping the Baal worship that she's been promoting or trying to to throw down the altars to Asherah, the altars to Baal. No, they're giving in to Jezebel's request to kill Elijah. As though Elijah is still the troublemaker. Well, Elijah runs for his life. He goes south, he goes as far south as as Beersheba, which is on the southern tip of the kingdom of Judah. So Israel is the northern kingdom, Judah is the southern kingdom. He's out of uh, Jezebel's jurisdiction and in, in Judah, but he's on the southern tip of it. It's like he's trying to get as far away as he can. But it's interesting because whenever he gets there, it, it seems like he's not really all about preserving his life. I mean, that's not really the reason why he runs away. He drops off his servant in Beersheba and he takes a day's walk into the wilderness where he lays down and he prays to God saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life. For I am no better than my father's. It's enough. Take my life away. I'm no better than my father's. Well, why does Elijah feel this way? I mean, he's the man of God. He's shown great faith throughout this whole story. I mean, he's he's endured great uh, difficulties. Think about what all has happened in Elijah's life. I mean, he spent three and a half years. He's given up so much in order to to serve God. He's praying for the drought. He he professes to Ahab there's going to be a drought. And then his whole life's turned upside down. He's living off of food from ravens. He's living off of food from a widow. He's just surviving for three and a half years. And the whole time he's praying to God, Please, Lord, don't let it rain until the people's hearts are ready to turn. What we see is all of that work. And, and, and as he comes to this competition full of boldness, full of confidence, all of that work of of showing his faith and his trust in God has come up empty. In his mind, in his eyes, he's done nothing to help anything. Has this ever happened to us? Has anybody here ever worked really hard to try to, to, to do something for the Lord? Maybe you worked on a friend or a neighbor, and maybe you've had what you thought was great success. Maybe they were coming. Maybe they even obeyed the gospel. Maybe they even uh, submitted to God, or so it seemed. And then they turned their heart back into the world, and there's nothing you can do. And all the work, all that effort, all that sweat, blood, tears, everything you poured into it is gone. Because they just don't want to. And they don't have to. All that work for nothing. I think many of us have been there. I think many of us have felt the kind of discouragement that Elijah is feeling as he says these words. But still, don't these words hit us as odd? 
It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life. I mean, he's done. (laughs) He's ready to give it up. He's been so fully devoted to the Lord, and now it's nothing, and his whole life's work seems to be nothing. Is, Is he suicidal here? What's going on? No. You see, what's interesting about this is Elijah's not upset about losing his job in the palace. He wasn't hoping to be the top prophet. or He wasn't hoping that now that all this drought's over, I get to marry a wife, I get to live my life, and everybody's going to serve the Lord, and my life's going to be easier. No, Elijah's upset because they've turned their hearts against the Lord, and he's focused on the Lord. He's still faithful. He doesn't say, I'm going to take my life. He's not doing something selfish like suicide. But he says, Lord, take my life. The pain is too much for me. I can't handle this. We see this same kind of statement out of Job, who loses all of his material possessions, loses his his family. We see this in Elijah because the the nation he loves will not turn their hearts to the Lord. That's his focus. That's his desire. That's his one goal in life. That's all he cares about. And he can't have that. And he says, it's enough. I don't want any more. I don't want any more pain. I don't want any more suffering. And so this is how he speaks to God. And he's ready to die. But God finds Elijah, and Elijah finds God. And what we see is that God does not respond in a way that we would expect. God doesn't say, yeah, sure, go ahead, Elijah, I'm going to let you die here, you're just starve out, and then you get to come be with me in heaven. He doesn't say that. Nor does He say, why are you laying here? Get up, get back to work. I mean, He's not like harsh toward Elijah. Nor does he act like uh, Elijah's feelings are you know, something he shouldn't have, like he should not feel this way. But God instead tells Elijah, he sends an angel to Elijah, and the angel cooks for Elijah and prepares for him a meal and a drink. And he says, arise and eat. And Elijah arises and he eats and he drinks. And then he goes and lays back down and he gets some rest. And then the angel comes up again and this time he touches Elijah. And and usually that's some indication of giving strength. That's what uh, happened with Daniel and other men throughout the Bible. And the angel touches, you know, Jesus even, it strengthens you. And he says to him again, arise and eat. But this time he also says, for the journey is too great for you. What journey? I mean, he's just running away from Jezebel. What, What kind of journey is this? Well... Elijah's about to make a journey to Mount Horeb. And we don't really, we're never really told that he was, he was told to go there. He's just going that direction. Uh, and God knows it, and God sends this angel to strengthen him. And so Elijah heads out toward Mount Horeb. And he travels 40 days and 40 nights. And, and that food and that drink is able to sustain him for that period of time. And then he gets to the mountain of God, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, in the wilderness on the southern portion of the Sinai Peninsula, way down there. And God talks to him and God asks him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Wait a second. <laughs> Isn't this an odd question? What are you doing here, Elijah? 
And that's odd because... God already knows the answer to this question. This is not something that would be away from God's mind, like He can't tell what Elijah is doing here. And He may have even told Elijah to go down here. Obviously He knows there's a long journey ahead of Him. But He asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah says, I have been very jealous for the Lord. Your people have forsaken the covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed the prophets. And he's making this point. I have been zealous, but they have been evil, and they have rejected the Lord, as though that is his reasoning for being here. What's interesting also about this is, it seems as though, as he continues, he says, I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life, To take it away. Yeah, he seems very pessimistic, right? This is is why he's saying all of this. Just take away my life. Let me die. Because he has been jealous. He has been zealous for the Lord. And all of Israel, all of them, have turned their back against him. And all the prophets have been killed. Well... You know, we just learned in the last chapter that Obadiah was hiding a hundred prophets. So what's going on here? Well, you know, maybe they exposed themselves. I don't know. But maybe they thought, oh, they're saying the Lord, He is God. Everything's good now. We can, we can come out of the, the, the caves. And maybe they were put to death too along the way. Maybe Elijah saw this. Maybe they sacrificed themselves. We don't know. But for whatever reason, Elijah says, I, even I, only am left and they seek my life. We get the impression that He's it. He's the last of the prophets. Israel has become so evil that they've killed off every single man of God in the nation. Hmm. Well, what does, what's he doing here? Why is, this, <laughs> why is this the place that he's going? He didn't ever really answer the question, did he? He just kind of stated his feelings on the matter. What's going on right now? How I'm feeling and why I'm doing what I'm doing. Why I feel like I should be dead and, and be with you. That seems to be what he's doing. But then God responds to Elijah and he says, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Okay, so now Elijah has responded and God says, won't you come out here and, and stand in my presence? This is interesting. Hmm. Well, alright. Um, Elijah starts to walk toward the opening of the cave and then all of a sudden, wind comes. And, and it, it's so strong it starts breaking the rocks. Outside, the, the mountain is literally falling apart because of the wind that is coming. And, and he says the Lord was not in the wind. And then all of a sudden there's an earthquake. The whole mountain is shaking. The Lord's not in the earthquake. And then there's a fire. Imagine this. Elijah, come out into my presence. And there's, earth, there's wind, there's earthquake, there's fire. I mean, I'd be terrified. I'd be curled up in the back of the cave, uh, terrified. Of, of what is going on outside. Like, what, it, what is he trying to do to me? What's going on? And then he hears uh, a, a very quiet, a gentle whisper. And so he wraps his face and he walks outside of the cave to hear what God says, to stand in His presence as He was commanded to do. And God says... What are you doing here, Elijah? 
I mean, the first time the question was asked, we're just kind of like, what, what kind of response is, what, what kind of response is this from God? What are you doing here, Elijah? That's not comforting Elijah at all. And then he does it again. He asks him the same question. Why does he do that? Why is he asking him this question? Well, Elijah responds, if he was supposed to learn something from the the wind, the earthquake, the fire, he didn't learn it because Elijah responds with the exact same response. He says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed the prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Why does he say the same thing? I mean... This is just a confusing text. You know, it's complex, complicated. There's not a whole lot of insight given into why these things are said this way. And we have to try to to understand what's going on here. What, What is he really saying in all of this? Well, think about this for a second. Elijah is on the mountain of God. The mountain where Moses came in to the the wilderness to establish this covenant with God's people. This is the very mountain where God gave the tablets of stone to Moses to bring down to the people. And so that is the covenant that the people have broken. And Elijah's comment to God is, the people have forsaken your covenant. There's something that's being implied in what Elijah is saying. But he's not willing to say it all. He's not willing to say, you need to do something about this. No, he's too humble for that. Elijah just says, this is the situation that's going on. And I don't know what to do about it. He's looking for God to solve the heart problem in Israel. That's what he wants. That's his whole desire. That's why he's so upset. Because everything seems broken and he can't fix it. Elijah knows there's nothing he can do to solve this problem. This is why he says this same thing twice. (laughs) Because this is how he feels and he knows that God knows all of this information and he's looking for God to give him a response. Elijah is not about uh, trying to prescribe a punishment for Israel. He doesn't, he doesn't involve himself in that, in that business of God's. He's just opening himself up to let God do whatever it is that God wants to do. And that's exactly what God does. As the text continues, we see God reveals His plans uh, for His people. He reveals that He is going to actually judge His people through the Syrians and, and also through someone inside of Israel. He tells Elijah, you're going to go and anoint Hazael. He's the king of Syria. So you're going to go outside of Israel to anoint a king who's then going to bring up the sword against my people. And then you're going to anoint Jehu and he's going to rise up against your own people. And you're also going to anoint Elisha. 
He's going to be a prophet like you, and he's going to end up uh, coming out and killing anybody that the others don't kill. Actually, what happens is, Elisha's the one who anoints Hazael, anoints Jehu, and Hazael and Jehu kill so many people, we don't really see Elisha killing anybody. I mean, they just wipe out the northern kingdom uh, in, a, in a lot of ways. They, they really uh, beat them hard. Uh, so it's really uh, good judgment that we see coming from God, fulfilling all of this that he says here to Elijah. But not just that. He goes on and he says that there's more than you can see, Elijah. I'm able to work to bring about judgment against this covenant. But you feel like there's no one else with you. Like there's no one else in all of Israel who, who, is, who is pursuing me or who is faithful to me. And here God says, you don't see everything that I see. In fact, I'm going to leave 7,000 who've not bowed a knee to Baal or, or kissed him. Well, that's interesting. God is now telling Elijah what he sees is way beyond what Elijah can see. And you can see how that would be very encouraging for Elijah who, who thinks he's going to be all alone going forward. Well, no, God is going to preserve. God is going to keep for himself a people. God is able to, to, to maintain a remnant of his people who will serve him faithfully. Well, how, how is this going to help with Elijah's depression. That's what we need to figure out because we struggle with the same things that Elijah struggles with. As Elijah's going through all of this struggle in his life, as he's, as he's dealing with his work seeming so fruitless, as he's dealing with depression and anxiety and struggle because he's zealous for the Lord and he wants to see the whole nation be faithful to God, we see that God responds in this way. Does this help Elijah and will this help us? I think it does. Let's think about this story a little bit. First of all, let's back out and think about it in the grand scheme of the Bible and understand what a major event this story is. Uh, in, in all the Bible, we only have two events that really seem to stand out as uh, God interacting with man in a way that seems very revealing. Like He's really showing Himself to man on a deeper level. And, and the, the main one we think about is Moses in Exodus chapter 34. Where very similar to this, we see Moses go into the cleft of the rock. And he asked to see the glory of the Lord. And God says, you can't see me, but I will cover with my hand and then I'll, you'll see me as I go past. And, and a, a Moses sees the, the glory of the Lord and it's a statement coming from an angel or from the Lord that says that he is a God who is great. Uh, it's steadfast, love, faithful uh, to a thousand generations, but by no means clearing the guilty. This is the picture that he gets on this mountain, Mount Horeb, in Exodus 34. And this is the same idea that we see in Elijah. Now what's interesting is, there's a number of other similarities that show us. We're really looking at the same scenario. You've got 40 days and 40 nights, Moses. 40 days and 40 nights, Elijah. The people have just done a great rebellion that they should know better than to do with Moses, the golden calf. The people have just done a great rebellion saying, the Lord, he is God, and then going back to worshiping Baal. I mean, there's a number of similarities here. And, and going to this place, 
we get the picture that Elijah is able to get an understanding of God that he didn't have previously. That God is righteous and able to judge those who do evil, but also able to show steadfast love for thousands. Now, their situations are totally different, right? Moses has not even come into the promised land yet. Elijah, uh, the kingdom has been there for years, for hundreds of years, and they're now turning against God. So we see a slight difference in the responses, but what we see in this is God does not change. God was the same as at Moses' time 700 years earlier as He is in Elijah's time. He is the same. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness for thousands while also able to give judgment against those who rebel against Him. But that's not just what makes this a major event. What makes this major is in the New Testament. We see these two men standing before Jesus on a high mountain, beholding His glory. It says that His face was shining brightly like a, like a star, like the sun. And, and there's these two men conversing with Jesus. This story is showing us that these men have a desire to see who God really is. To know God on a deeper level. And they don't understand as they're, as they're dealing with this world around them, they're jealous for the Lord, they're zealous for the Lord, and they don't understand why no one else around them has a heart that wants to see what they want to see. And they're able to see it because God shows it to them. This is what we need to be. <laughs> Desiring so much to stare into the glory of the Lord. And not die. (laughs) And not be judged, but find favor in His sight. And find understanding of His steadfast love and of His, His faithfulness and also of His righteousness and His justice. But there's also two lessons that we learn as we look at this story. As we see Elijah struggling and suffering, as he goes through all of this... He learns that God has not changed, that God is still faithful, He's still in control, He's still doing everything, but He also learns that the journey was too much for Him. Like we have to learn, the journey's too much for us. It's interesting, that little statement uh, back in verse 4 where He, he says, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, take my life, I'm done. You know, I'm tapping out, I'm, I'm finished. That God comes back and says, the journey is too far for you. That one little statement holds true for all mankind. Life's journey is too far for us. It's too much for us. If we're zealous for the Lord, if we're jealous for the Lord, if we love the Lord with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind and all our strength, then it's going to be too much for us. We're going to get discouraged because we don't have the ability to help those we love to see the glory of God that we see. We just can't, we can't fix them. We want to, right? We want to fix the church. We want to fix society. We want to fix our government. We want to fix our wife. And so we get critical and we, we talk and tell her what she needs to do or what he needs to do. And, and, and we do all these things to try to fix everybody, to try to make everything right. We put in all this effort and all this work and all this striving. And we don't see it turn out the way it's supposed to because we find we're completely unable to change a heart of those around us. 
How many of us think that if God would just give me a miracle, if God would just, you know, give me the ability to do something great, to do something to show them that God is true, maybe if He would just give me enough understanding of this that I can show them that this really is the truth, then their heart would turn. We see with Elijah, he does all these miracles for them to see, and they still don't turn. They still don't, they don't have a heart that desires to see the Lord, that desires to know Him. And we see this in, in Luke 16, as Jesus is telling us about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man is in uh, the place of torment, and he says, Lord, send someone back to my five brothers so that they may believe and not come to this place. And Jesus says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He says, no, but if someone will come back from the dead. And Abraham says, even if someone would rise from the dead, they would not believe. You know, we think that maybe there's something we can do, some way that we can turn men's hearts back to God, that we can fix people. And in all of our efforts of striving to do that, we can become proud, and we can, as a result of that, become even more discouraged. Elijah shows us the need for humility. <laughs> you know, as, as, as we try to fix people, we can get impatient and say, it's all their fault. Nobody wants to listen. I know the truth and they won't listen. Or we can do like Elijah and say, man, <laughs> I'm no better than anybody else. I'm no better than my father's. It's all my fault. I, I'm, I'm inept. I'm unable to do anything to, to help anybody. I can't fix anyone. And this is the way that Elijah handles his work as he goes to God. He says, I'm no better than my father's. We see humility in him. That as he's trying to work, as he's trying to do what God wants him to do, he's unable to do it because he's just too weak. There's something that's missing. There's something that's wrong that he can't figure out. And Paul pointed to this. In the New Testament, and in Second Corinthians, he kind of he alluded to this idea that that we might try to do things, that we might try to fix people, that we might try to make people believe and understand the truth. In Second Corinthians chapter four, it says, "Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but to." But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves uh, to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, notice he's pointing out that some people are not going to see it. There's something in front of them. Our gospel is veiled. It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, some people can't see what those who are zealous and jealous for the Lord have been able to see. Some people can't behold the glory of the Lord. There's a, there's a veil over their eyes. They are blinded to what is good, to what is wonderful, which we have been given the opportunity to see in the plainly spoken word of the Lord. And he says, we're not tampering with it. We're not trying to fix the way that we do things. We're not trying to make it in such a way that everybody will listen and everybody will turn and follow the Lord like we're going to fix the whole nation of Israel. That's not the way he's looking at it. He's saying, we're just stating the truth. Verse 5, For what we proclaim 
is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I love verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We approach our work as Elijah does, thinking the power is ours and we can fix it and we can we can use the gospel as a tool to fix and to correct everyone around us but the truth is the power belongs to God and we're just servants of his sent out to shine his light for those who desire to see to see the journey is too great for us but the journey is never too far or too great for God God is the one who is able to turn the hearts of men back to Him. And He has chosen to do this by sending His Son down to this earth to live a life that is perfect, that shows His glory for all mankind to behold and to let Himself be sacrificed to show His steadfast and faithful love that's greater than anything that we can imagine. God is able to rescue the godly and to punish those who are unrighteous. We are not. We have to relinquish our control, our desire to control, to fix, to, to, to correct everyone else around us as though it's within our power to do that. And we have to let God use us to serve Him and to shine the light for others to see. Elijah is then told, I want you to go out. I want you to anoint these guys and continue in the work that that you've been given to do. And that's exactly what he does. And there are thousands, it seems, who end up being faithful. And we see in Elisha a whole school of prophets who are developing over time. And God is working through the work that Elijah does to bring about His glory. This is the way that God has always worked. He's he's always working to bring up those who are downcast, those who are discouraged, and to encourage them that they can be more through His working through them. He doesn't go for the proud. He's opposed to the proud. But He gives grace to the humble. He loves those who humbly submit to Him and are willing to give them their hearts and want to see Him and be with Him for all eternity. Is that you? Is that me? That's, that, that's what this message is trying to encourage us to be. All those who seek the Lord can find Him. In the openly spoken word, the, the gospel, we find the power of God to save all those who put their faith and their trust in Him. So it's up to you. It's up to me. What am I going to do? Am I going to put my trust in myself to try to, to, to work hard and, and to be righteous and perfect and wonderful? Or am I going to put my trust in the Lord and work with love knowing that He's working through me to accomplish whatever He can accomplish? It may not be the whole nation of the United States, but who knows? Because of our work, maybe 7,000 will be faithful. Uh, who knows how many thousands? So this is our goal. This is our desire.
If you're here tonight and you, you have not obeyed the gospel, you've not began to faithfully serve the Lord, uh, we want to encourage you to do that. We want to help you in any way we can. Uh, if you know what you need to do, please come forward as we stand and sing.